I'm Shereen Fashik, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail, but also a lot of other things. This is a little bit of a special episode for us. Uh, our guest today is a little bit different from the usual retail people that I have on here. Uh, Hunter Rock is co-founder and partner at Homebrew, seed stage investment firm. Also, one of my favorite Twitter follows uh, because he's always doing something interesting on Twitter. And so I'm so excited to have him on today's show. Hi, Hunter. I, I always love an introduction that begins with something a little bit different. It is something a little bit different. We have had, I think, the amount of conversations on this podcast from like retail execs and not denigrating them. They've been some of my favorite. Just talking just the deep into going into things like Bopus has been yes. a really big part of the podcast of my life recently. Um, so it's fun to go a little bit different. Oh, I always, I enjoy this podcast because it doesn't usually feature people like me. <laughs> which is, which is always the thing with my favorite podcast. I don't like the big media podcast. Um, I guess first things first, how are you? People always say that meaningfully now, don't they? Like, how, how are you? Yeah, um, I'm doing well. You know, so I'm out here in San Francisco. Um, we, as a, as a venture fund, we're a small five person group, but started working from home in early March. And, um, then two weeks later, I think everybody started working from home and my, I have, uh, I have a daughter and, and her elementary school shifted to distance learning. So it's, uh, you know, whatever the, the new, the new normal, I think, I think VC is the party line is supposed to be. We're open for business. I think that's ah, what everybody yes. says. Like, uh, Right, and, this uh, is the part. Yeah, indeed. So indeed, we're, we're open for business. We've been making new investments. But also, obviously, this is a period where, you know, you're sort of supporting with and working with some of the, the entrepreneurs that you've backed. Um, pretty much everyone ripped up their 2020 plan, you know, the nice the nice plan they spent all of December and January on. And, um, you know, over the last four to six to eight weeks have been sort of rethinking what this year looks like for them. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we've talked about this uh, on this podcast, but also anybody who's kind of like listened to me recently knows, I mean, what we were planning for in January is not what we are planning for even in our business um, as of today. So that makes sense. I am curious about that, actually. So you've probably spent, I mean, a lot of time recently kind of talking to your portfolio company founders, but just in general, sort of execs at a lot of different companies recently. And I have this I have this sort of weird question to ask you because I always believed that there's almost like two versions of anybody who's in like an exec or management or a founder type position. There's almost two versions of these people right now. I mean, there's this like one who sort of is like, okay, I'm on, like, this is the time. It's wartime CEO stuff. I got this. Let's do this. And then, and I say this with a lot of respect for these people, there's a lot of really tough stuff happening. And then I think that I, when I say to them, wow, like things are are tough, aren't they? They're sort of like, you know, can we just, let's go off the record. And uh, this is really hard. Like, this is really, really hard. I don't know if I'll make it. I don't know if I'll have to furlough more people. I don't know if I'll lay off more people. It's really an interesting sort of crisis in that sense. Like, people are almost not even wanting to say anything in fear of, like, moving the market in a weird mm -hmm. place. They don't even want to say anything negative because what if somebody else reads it and then they do believe everything's negative? Have you ever seen anything like this in terms of just the cautiousness of people leading things and how hard it's been? Yeah. You know, I think it's, um, sometimes I talk with startups and I talk about sort of where are you a, where are you a maker of reality versus a taker of reality? Right. And I think startups in general sort of believe that there are, they're makers of reality, right? They have a vision of something that should exist or the way the world should work. And, you know, they believe if they get the right people together, and build the right product and convey that product, the value of that product, the innovation of that product to the right group of customers, clients, you know, purchasers that like they will be able to make the reality that they imagine. 
And I think when you get hit with something that at a macro scale is uh, like, you know, what we're going through now, you, you sometimes realize that there's things that you're going to be a taker of reality on. And so part of the leadership style or the, the sort of bifurcation of, you know, uh, internal versus external kind of uh, uh, posturing, um, I think comes down to sort of trying to to simultaneously, you know, sort of keep one foot in the maker of reality and one foot in the taker of reality camp. Um, for us, you know, a lot of the first message we sent to our portfolio founders um, wasn't about cash planning or mm. PPP loans or, you know, headcount. It was actually about, you know, take care of yourselves, take care of your team, um, that this is going to be a period where uh, for reasons that, you know, are self-aware or in some cases, you know, very individual, like there's going to be a lot of emotion. Um, and uh, you should be prepared to sort of interact with your, you know, your co-founders, your team, your investors, your customers, um, understanding that, you know, that, 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 you know, that, that emotion is high, that people are um, trying to figure out a lot of things simultaneously, some of which um, are business, some of which are personal. Mm -hmm. And um, so to just be conscious of that, you know, then we switch to, well, okay, Let's talk about how do we help you think through some of the decisions you have to make. You know, we have companies in the portfolio, um, a, uh, a furniture company called Kaba, a uh, uh, spirits company called House, um, a kid's clothing company called Primary, mm -hmm. all of which have um, done quite well over the last, you know, month or two. In most Elena cases- especially is very happy. <laughs> yeah, in most cases with a- you know, slight augmentation to the plan of record, right? So it wasn't a pivot or a change in what they're doing, just an opportunity to see a new need um, and help their customers uh, in a different way. We've got other folks who, you know, we do a lot of B2B SaaS. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we've got other stuff where they're kind of taking a little more of a wait and see. Um, yeah. They're not servicing the hospitality, the travel, the retail markets directly, although some of those folks might be in their customer base. Um, and so for them, it's going to be a question about enterprise sales cycles. And, you know, for 2020, what are people actually focused on um, doing, you know, where do they want to spend money? Um, so those types of decisions. We're going to take a quick break for an ad and we'll be right back. One question I had is, has this, has anything here kind of changed or surprised how you or Seth have kind of thought about, you know, the qualities you look for in people? Because so much of kind of working with the right companies and finding the right companies to, that you want to work on has been, you know, about people that you believe in, companies you believe mm -hmm. in, missions you believe in, the values. Has this current situation kind of, is there like something you've added more to that list? It's like, until now I believed in this and now I'm looking also for this quality, this quality. You know, we started in 2013, early 2013. My partner, Sacha, and I had worked together at Google, always wanted to work together again, remained friends, and then several years later came together um, out of operating careers to start Homebrew. And because we got to start that together and start with a blank sheet of paper, we were pretty deliberate from early on about the type of founders we wanted to back and the type of relationships we wanted to have with them, um, both of which I think have remained consistent over the last seven years and and um, help us do our job during a time like this. We've always been focused um, or open to founders who maybe are uh, come from non-traditional backgrounds, um, are mission-driven, mission-aligned. So we think that they have a, we you know, people sometimes talk about product market fit, you know, which like, is your product finding uh, the right customers? I think even before that, you talk about founder market fit and you ask yourself the question, 
why, why, why is this founder or why are these founders working to solve this problem? And if the answer is something that usually comes, you know, from a very sort of personal interest in the problem, a deep insight or connection, um, you know, then when they hit a speed bump, or in this case, maybe a very large speed bump, you know, from a, a global standpoint, um, they don't, they don't stop, you know, mm. they don't, uh, they, they, they pause maybe and say, okay, how do I have to rethink, you know, my business? But, you know, they're not, they're not just doing this opportunistically. <laughs> they're doing mm. this because they couldn't imagine doing anything else. And so, um, I think that always matters to us and, and continues to do so. You know, one thing, you know, people talk about now, um, how do you make investments over Zoom, right? Like, isn't it so important to meet people? And of course, you know, given, given the opportunity, uh, we'd love to spend more, you know, one-on-one -on -one personal time with people. When we make an investment, we're usually putting a million or $2 million into sort of their seed round, their first kind of zero to 5 million. And so, you know, we're going to be working with these people for quite a while. So one thing that we've done is, um, given that we haven't been able to actually, you know, see people in person, we've emphasized making sure that we um, get all the co-founders on a Zoom together and sort of just, you know, ask some questions and then kind of hang back and see how they all interact together. How do they, um, how do they answer questions around, well, what happens if you disagree or, you know, uh, share with me, uh, you know, why she's the right co-founder, uh, you know, outside of the skills, like what conversations did you have about how you were going to work together or why you're mm -hmm. doing this or what success looks like. And it's not that we wouldn't cover those, um, you know, normally, uh, you know, <laughs> 90 days ago and when, when everything, when anything was the same, but, um, you know, sometimes switching to, you know, zoom or those types of things, you can just get very focused on, you know, information like, okay, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. I need information. Great. Now let's hang up. You know, you, yeah. there, like pause, you know, there's very few times that you pause and just sort of sit there. Um, yeah. so we've tried Hard to make sure silence, right? You yeah, don't, exactly. don't have silence on zoom. awkward zoom silence. Um, <laughs> so we've tried to make sure that we're, you know, creating space, um, to see how teams interact, not just individuals. So I think that's probably something we've had to emphasize more in the last month or two, but it, it again has to do with understanding and validating what we believe um, that team, uh, you know, why they're doing this and what they have the ability to do together, yeah. more so than shifting to, you know, say, well, before we didn't really care if you were scrappy and now we care if you're scrappy. Like sure. we've always cared if you're scrappy. The foundation. Haven't yeah. changed. And it's that is really interesting because I feel like, you know, I've heard sort of there's a few words that have been like thrown around a lot recently, you know, resilience and perseverance. And I completely agree. I mean, these are these this is the time at which your already existing resilience or perseverance or whatever, you know, use it now. Like use it wisely, use it now. Um, but also at the same time, um, actually there was a piece of writing I read about just about how many, you know, founders now, right now. Are have never lived through potentially a any sort of crisis before. Mm -hmm. So when it was you know the last kind of financial recession of the two thousand eight two thousand nine, they were either potentially just not even working um, in some companies, and uh, they were or, potentially they were, in high school. They were potentially in high school, um, yeah. or they were you know okay whatever they they were working but they weren't in the positions they're in right now. Certainly before that, I mean. Um, just some of the sort of value of, I think, people of experience. I mean, like, is there a pivot to experience? Is this, you know, and I've heard, especially in media, a lot of people say, look at all my middle managers. None of them, none of them know what to do when things aren't good. Um, yeah. Is this something that you either experience or are seeing or just even looking at? 
oh, I love this. This tees me up about uh, talking how uh, how valuable the fact that I'm 46 is. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a you know, it's funny 46. Uh, I came out here in 19, I came out to Silicon Valley in 1998 um, for grad school and finished grad school in 2000. So I, I graduated into, you know, kind of like the web one bust. Um, my partner, Satya, had done venture twice before in his career, uh, 98 to 2000 and 2007 to 2011. So maybe uh, I'm fortunate that, you know, <laughs> The other two times he was an investor uh, included a market cycle. Yeah. I, you know, what the way that I think about this is, um, what lessons do I want people to learn? But what do I want them to not overlearn? Right. So, uh, not you know, sports metaphor. I guess you know, people will sometimes say a quarterback, you know, in football who throws an interception, you know, there's an opportunity, you know in the moment or after the game to sort of look at film, understand, you know, why that interception occurred, but you got to be under the, you know, in, in the huddle seven seconds later and not afraid to throw the ball. And so I think um, there's a lot of great conversations amongst entrepreneurs, amongst entrepreneurs, and in some cases, their investors or their advisors, um, trying to pattern match against, you know, what are some techniques you used, you know, to, you mainly, you know, do a, a headcount reduction, but also, you know, make make that one decision and then move on, as opposed to delaying it or, um, you know, having to uh, uh, lay off two people every week when it might have just been better for the company to, you know, cut once but cut deep, you know, type of thing. And I, I do think um, those are important. What I, what I try to tell founders is when they are, you know, the, the founders we work with is, you know, what, what our job is and what, the, what we're trying to do is bring you information, relationships, you know, the, the things you need as quickly as possible to make better decisions. Sometimes it's going to be an answer, like there's a definitive right answer. But a lot of times it's just going to be understanding, um, you know, a set of opinions um, or perspectives, and then you have to make the best decision. And right. so I think at times like this, you know, you can go back and you can say, well, you know, what questions did you ask yourself in 2008 when, you know, all of a sudden the markets collapsed? And the answers from those entrepreneurs in 2008 may or may not be the right answers for, uh, you know, companies in 2020. But the questions they asked themselves might be the things that are evergreen. Mm -hmm. And so asking some of those questions of yourself and uh, as a founder who might be going through something like this the first time, I think that's where it gets valuable. What about the ones who are just probably the high schoolers? I mean, they is there kind of this overall, I don't know, pivot to experience? Do you think people will think differently about sort of, you know, oh, did we prize youth so much? You see this in advertising quite a mm. bit, right? Like a lot of agencies, um, ad agencies, especially creative industries, stocked up with young, frankly, cheap people very, very quickly in the name of digital and said, you know, we're getting these people because the older people don't know digital. And then turns out that it didn't really matter. I mean, a lot of this came down to, wait, if you don't know how to be resilient or know better business basics, or in the case of founders, you know, just know how to run a company during a bad time versus a good time, does that fundamentally kind of alter, I don't know, just the landscape a little bit? Yeah. I, look, I think there's a lot of resources available to young founders, advisors, um, you know, they build out their executive team as they grow. And so that's why very often, especially in some of these industries where there are decades of history. Um, you know, you might see a 27-year-old founder, but as they're building their executive team, you know, you might see the 37-year-old, you know, 42-year-old um, person who has maybe, you know, 
10, 15, 20 years of experience under their, under their belt. And like, if you can harness that, if you can figure out as a founder how to attract people who do have more experience than you and um, uh, bring them on board in some form, I, I think that's incredibly valuable. You know, investors, every investor, I think, has certain risks that they're more comfortable with or less comfortable with. I do know some investors who generally, especially maybe in times like this, say, you know what, I don't want to, this is a place where you want to back repeat founders, not first-time founders, because first-time founders are, you know, it takes so much effort to mentor them and, you know, they let them learn on somebody else's dime or that type of stuff. Um, you know, that's a, that's a fine opinion. It's not, you know, uh, you can argue whether it's right or wrong, but, uh, I mean, for, for us, that's not a consideration. Like we're very happy to work with first-time founders, which means, um, whether that's somebody who is starting a company right out of school or it's somebody who maybe spent 10 to 15 years in an industry and mm -hmm. then, um, realize that what they really want to be built, really want to build, you know, maybe can't be built within, you know, a 5,000 person company so that they're going to start the company. You know, that that's fine. We, we look much more to the question about, you know, are they building something that they have a deep insight in, um, that they care about personally, and are they the type of leader who's likely to be able to attract folks to that cause? Um, if those things are in place and you combine that with, you know, a, a market or a problem of significant, significant size, um, like those are some of the preconditions, I think, in order to build, you know, a quote unquote venture scale company. It's also, and, and to me, I think this is a good time to like, let's flip it. Like this is the time, you know, founders should be sort of thinking, okay, what, what have my investing partners done for me? What are, mm -hmm. what are they doing for me? And some of the simplest stuff is like, you know, the help you mentioned PPP loans, but I've heard so many stories about these are the ones who really came through. These are the ones who sat there and like, you know, helped me with the font on my PPP mm -hmm. loan application, or I couldn't use blue pens or, but also more, more than that, they were emotional support. They were mental health support. Um, does this kind of change, like, let's flip it almost. Are, are you thinking about how this current situation even may change the founder's relationship with their investors did maybe we ask more questions? i hope so i hope so i mean we've designed our strategy around being able to dedicate the time to supporting the founders and that you know uh we, we you know we, we spend our the majority of our week with the teams we've backed while of course looking at new investments so um I, you know i think we've maintained the type of relationships day to day that then allow us to talk about these very human very personal issues when necessary not all of a sudden to you know, hey, I know I wrote you a check three years ago and you haven't heard from me, but, uh, you know, let's let's talk about, you know, let's talk about pandemics. Um, I, I do think uh, on both the uh, founder side and the investor side, you know, this job is very different when things are not, quote unquote, easy or curves aren't just generally up and to the right. Um, there's sort of a, a version of venture investing that feels superficial sometimes, which is the like, I'm investing in hot companies and tweeting about the winners, you know, but like where the work is, where the work is actually done is, you know, sort of, you're not on the org chart. So you're ultimately, you're not building these companies, but you can help the founders build, you know, make sure that they're building the best version of whatever that company is going to become. Mm -hmm. And I do think you're fundamentally supporting the people. So, um, you know, I think one, uh, byproduct of this would be, look, if over the course of the next year, some investors who, you know, are great on Twitter, great on content marketing, but actually drop the ball when it comes to supporting their companies, if some of their, you know, halos are kind of tarnished a little bit, fantastic. 
you know, uh, I like that from a competitive standpoint because yeah. I believe that we're <laughs> one of the funds that actually, you know, lives up to and exceeds the expectations we set with founders. Mm-hmm. But I also think it might give founders a more nuanced view of when you're building these cap tables, what are some of the questions you want to ask investors, you know, before you take their money <laughs> as yeah. opposed to, um, you know, how, letting the wire transfer go through and then figuring out, you know, what you have. Sure. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, there we've, um, again, let's talk like pre-pandemic, um, before Corona, BC, um, there was, uh, there was, we had, you know, people, and especially in DTC retail, because that's mostly who I've spoken to, you know, they were like, we need to ask more of those questions of people that potentially want to invest in us or that we want to work with. And it came back to like a bigger thing, which almost they, a lot of them, or a lot of the consumer startup or consumer retail startup industry just felt like, it felt like they were in this weird cycle of raising a lot of money and losing a lot of money, mostly in marketing, mostly in customer acquisition. And lots been said about sort of, you know, there was a time at which it was easy to like, CAC was the new rent and then rent became the new CAC. I can't keep track, but is this like a reality check for that industry specifically? I'm talking more like in that DTC retail space. I mean, is this going to be the shakeout that everybody thought would come, but nobody thought it would come in the, in, in the form of a coronavirus, you know, pandemic plus potential recession, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I might even be a little bit more dramatic. I think it's the second punch, not the first punch. Mm-hmm. I think the first punch was what was going on already with sort of a reconciling about margins and, um, you know, uh, is what is a quote unquote tech company. Um, you know, for a while, uh, you know, you would sort of have companies that, uh, you know, had a large physical good presence, a retail presence, um, you know, and expected that they would trade at a discount to Google, you know, a slight discount to Google when maybe they should be trading, you know, in, in best situation at a slight premium to the gap. Um, (laughs) and both of these companies, I mean, both of those comparisons are, you know, perfectly viable. It's not, um, uh, saying, um, hey, you know, there's not a big business to be built here. But I do think the way that you sort of capitalize that business and how you think about use of different financial instruments has changed um, over the course of the last year from thinking, well, it takes four to six rounds of venture capital to build, you know, uh, a, a strong DTC company to it takes one to two rounds of risk capital, then maybe a whole bunch of credit and debt products, and by the way, revenue, and then maybe there's growth expansion capital at the you know at the back end of that. Right. Um, I think that's healthy. That was happening, of course, when those things happen. Um, you know, when the market kind of turns a little bit and starts judging you by different metrics, um, there are going to be companies that before were told they were doing great, but then all of a sudden are told, you know, sorry, the the goalpost yeah, sure. moved or the game has changed. Sure. And that sometimes can feel unfair, but at the end of the day, it's more quantitative than qualitative. It's, you know, um, look, I, get, I don't think we're going to have access to another $300 million to build out our lifestyle brand. Um, and so let's think about, you know, getting leaner, but ultimately, you know, you'll end on the other end stronger. I think what has now happened with, you know, the shelter in place and, the you know, the especially hard hit areas and travel and hospitality, um, physical retail for at least, you know, a little while. Um, I think that, you know, is, is, couldn't be anticipated, right? Like the, I would, I would hold investors and founders accountable to, you know, healthy balance sheets, but you know, of, of the, okay, reconcile, you know, can you spend two, can you spend a billion dollars to build a travel company? Now what has happened is sort of more of a shock to the system. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think this is going to, you know, some companies will 
benefit dramatically from it. But I also think there's going to be some very good companies mm-hmm. um, that, uh, you know, might have a harder time getting through it. And, yeah. you know, that's obviously always, you know, always tragic. Um, and the goalposts have always changed. I mean, you know, there were like, I, I love that, like, what is that? DTC 1.0, DTC 2.0, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're in black 5.0, but okay, you take 2010 and you take 2020 again, even Subscription boxes. Sure. It was subscription boxes. It was all subscription. <laughs> Everybody had it. There was like a dirt subscription box. I don't know if you remember this, but there was an actual <laughs> dirt subscription box with various types of dirt and it did really well. But also you had more, you had all these addressable markets with a lot of incumbents that, you know, could be disrupted. Yeah. And then that changed because those incumbents woke up at one point. There the were- easiest way for a founder to go broke is to listen to their investors about where they need to be 18 months from now, you know, because <laughs> um, those goalposts are always going to move. And, you know, it reminds me of another sort of, you know, axiom, which is like, if as a CEO, if you uh, never listen to your board, you might get fired. If you always listen to your board, you'll definitely get fired. Yeah. <laughs> and so... I think at the end of the day, it's you know um, understanding how to in the early days of any of these companies, especially these D two C companies. I, I think there's opportunity to play offense while maintaining optionality. If you take large chunks of venture capital, especially from folks who have very large funds, which essentially means they you know uh, you know just a few hundred million dollar outcome is meaningless to them. You are. Um, potentially giving yourself the ability to play a certain type of offense, but you're reducing your optionality dramatically. Right. So the companies that we've worked with that you know might fall into this category, like primary in the kids' clothing space, you know, huge market space, you know, somewhat endemic spend. You know, if you if you start buying them when you have a baby, you're probably going to continue buying them through age 12. Um, and didn't go out and raise you know uh, a 50 million dollar A round. Um, mm-hmm. You know grew strategically and are now in a, you know, a, a good place where they can control their own destiny. And, um, you know, the, the two founders, Galen and Christina, had previously worked at um, quidzydiapers.com with Mark Laurie, who went on to do Jet and stuff, and so, um, as well as some large CPG companies. And I think they sort of brought some of that mentality <laughs> to- They were bringing that incumbent yeah. mentality on And so, yeah. you know, you have to, you, you can't totally come at this and um, be conservative from day one. Like that's not what um, growth companies are about. But I think always sort of understanding with each round of capital you raise, asking yourself the question, um, if this was the last round of capital we had access to, how would we build our business? Is a healthy um, question for a management team to understand what their answer would look like because it always gives them the ability to go down that path if they want to or if they need to. Mm-hmm. Um, we purposely keep our funds relatively small. The third fund we're investing out of right now is a $90 million fund mm-hmm. because we want um, we want to keep the ability for founders to build substantially, value business, substantially valuable businesses um, that could be meaningful outcomes for us without having to force everything to be, you know, the, the billion, $5 billion, $10 billion outcome. Um, yeah. And the outcome and, thing was what it was, right? I mean, you said this earlier, or you alluded to it, but sort of there was this like, there was this big like Silicon Valley buzz. It was like, we will build, consumer startups will build, we'll be built on the exact same principles almost that were like, you know, that dot coms <laughs> were built under. And some of those principles just weren't true. You needed inventory management was a different way. You dealt with things. Supply chain was yeah. different. So like uh, primary has multi-home their supply chain. House has, you know, essentially, you know, literally has their supply chain in, in-house. Yes. And uh, Kaba, the furniture company, um, does a lot of their production within the U.S. and has always done that. So like, I think in the second half of the year, what I'm excited about is not just how companies like that have sort of 
managed and benefited through, you know, the um, uh, less competition for customer acquisition. So CAC has fallen, but in the second half of the year, they're going to have, you know, they're going to have product and, you know, are going to be able to be launching new SKUs at a point which a lot of folks who've been dependent on, you know, potentially only China or China and India um, are going to be struggling to stay in stock, let alone put new product on shelves. That is interesting. And you invested in a company I really actually really am interested in, which is Lumi. And yes. did, um, and, and they're, for people who don't know, um, they make basically sort of packaging for, I guess we'll call them online brands, you know, really mm-hmm. anything that you're getting in a really pretty box and all of that. And it's all customizable, et cetera. What made you interested in companies like that? Because I yeah. think that the next frontier almost for retail is not, it's like the interesting stuff in the space is all actually happening in the back end. It's the stuff that people like don't think is sexy, but it's actually really kind of sexy. Absolutely. That, that's a really fun investment for us. So we invested in them in 2015, Jesse Janae um, and Stefan are co-founders. Jesse is great. She's, you know, five, five feet of CEO. That's like 20 feet of energy. Um, <laughs> and uh, they had actually started earlier together, a company that was focused on a particular type of like uh, fabric dye. They were, uh, it was a craft type of company. And being part of that ecosystem, they just started to see that, you know, pack- packaging is the new retail, right? If you are building something that you're going to ship to your consumer, you know, they're never setting in a foot inside your store. Like, mm-hmm. you know, your website or your app is your store. But then all of a sudden the package that you receive from that um, D2C company, like, is the extension of that experience. And it's it's what you post to social media. It's what you feel, you know. Uh, uh, the brand experience starts, I mean, you know, Apple is sort of the perfect comparison, right? Like, you know, the, the thought and design that it's, you know, putting to opening that package. And so, you know, in their mind, well, how can we do this for folks in a way that uh, makes it more universally available and also manages cost, right? So by creating more of a, a you know, taking packaging, which is, you know, uh, traditionally has middlemen upon middlemen upon <laughs> middlemen, yeah. um, a bunch of different costs in the sense of like, well, if it's not a flexible supply chain for your, let's say, pet food company, you know, do you have to lock up $500,000 in packaging in a warehouse that trickles down to then the amount of capital that I need to raise, which then, you know, referring back to what we talked about earlier, all of a sudden means you need to, you know, sell part of your company in order to raise money to have more cardboard boxes on hand. Like those are all inefficient things. And so Jesse and Stefan essentially built, you know, sort of a uh, a layer over a global supply, you know, global packaging supply chain that allows uh, companies to uh, essentially design and uh, manage, order and manage the, mm-hmm. you know, all the packaging they need uh, for, um, you know, for sending that mattress, for sending that shirt, for sending those, you know, CBD pills. Totally. Um, we've always been attracted to infrastructure like that. Uh, we have a few other investments uh, in companies that either do APIs, a company called Plaid in the financial space that sort of helps helps people open up uh, their banking information to, to be shared with different types of apps. And uh, recently, uh, uh, Visa announced an acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, because we think that one of the fundamental principles of software is you know, efficiency, data transparency, uh, lowering the bar for... Um, who wants to use and access those tools. So before mm-hmm. you had to be, you know, maybe you had to be at a, you know, at a Nestle or at a Macy's, you know, to have access to, you know, a global, uh, you know, supply chain for your packaging. Um, that doesn't seem fair. It seems like anybody who, you know, owns a Shopify store, you know, sure. and is growing should be able to have, you know, amazing, um, high quality, you know, 
uh, uh, just in time uh, packaging. And so yeah. that was the bet, right? The bet is that like, uh, there's gonna be more and more and more folks selling things online and they need boxes. <laughs> What do you see is like across companies, like all these categories, okay, if it's an infrastructure, retail as a service or retail, retail or consumer goods or staples or, or a plaid, et cetera. What are the most common challenges that you're like, okay, no matter what category you're in, no matter what you're doing, sort of this is one that everyone has and so, whether they fix it or not. Yeah. So especially when, you know, when you're talking about a business selling to another business, like a, a Lumi or... Um, I think the greatest challenge is the difference between, um, you know, market testing that says I went to a hundred potential customers and asked them if they liked my idea or wanted my, you know, to be developed solution, and a hundred of them said yes. Connecting that sort of expressed intent with what actually happens when you build a product and need to try to sell it to people, and then two of them buy it, <laughs> which is that's great, but I have, you know, I have three priorities this year. And, you know, you're not one of them or that's great, but, you know, right. I figured out a way to solve this right now that isn't costing me anything, or at least not costing me in a measurable way. I'm throwing, you know, human staff at it, you know, uh, to do my, you know, my scheduling instead of a super duper AI tool, you know, why do I want to create a new budget line item for this? Or, um, this looks great, but I'd have to train 50 people on my staff to use it. And I just don't have the, you know, the time or the complexity. So all the things that happen in between sort of the like, hey, do you want ice cream? And everybody nods their head to, you know, actually making and selling them, you know, the ice cream. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we try when we're talking to founders, we try to understand um, how they've really done that kind of customer development, um, whether they have a specific sort of user persona or two customer type, you know, who are your initial design partners for this? What's that wedge that you're going to go after? Who finds this not just, you know, not just valuable, but urgent? And those are the kind of the customers that we do diligence with um, because we want to make sure that they can find a foothold in the market and then expand from there. And so I think people sometimes underestimate the gap between, um, you know, uh, expressed interest from, you know, merely kind of surveys or conversations and what it takes to actually sell something into that customer. Um, and so I think that's something that people, especially first-time entrepreneurs, usually underestimate. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, thank you so much, Hunter. This was great. Yeah. Wait, do I get to ask you a question? Yeah, sure. Oh, no. So so uh, what? as you talk to all these entrepreneurs, um, what's one thing that, that if you could, uh, you know, sort of drive home for them about the what the next six months look like, what would you tell them? Uh, like about the reality of the situation, I think. Yeah. Um, I think it's like, I think it's the fundamentals and maybe this is not for retail. I've definitely in my business, I mean, mm. I'm in media, I'm a journalist. I, I think that, you know, the fundamentals have never been more important. Like there was a lot of, you mentioned this earlier, but like everyone wanted to be a tech company. This was true for our, our business. It's like everyone was out there building CMSs and, mm. you know, trying to license them. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But I think everyone wanted to be a tech company or a distribution company or something else company when it, in fact, they just needed to be a sell, make the content, sell the content directly company. And if there was anything that I would like drive home, it's like, these things just aren't sexy. And I keep using that word and I sort of actually mm -hmm. hate that word, but it yeah. it encapsulates what it is. I mean, 
everyone wants to have like a really fun brand. Everyone wants to sell fun things, but actually it's like the packaging company that I think is actually yeah. going to make a difference or, or the company that just, Hey, we write about, I don't know. Um, there's some such, such interesting like B2B businesses out there that are so healthy right now. Yeah, of course they're going to get hit. And of course their forecasts are down, but they're not that down. They're down yeah. only a little bit and their recovery, I would imagine is going to be faster because their fundamentals were really strong. They had a strong customer base, they had strong pricing that was like premium, premium enough that it became mm-hmm. necessary versus being, you know, $50 a year, which people started actually taking that out. Um, so I think it's like the premium fundamentals that I would drive home for any, and I assume that's across businesses. Um, yeah, yeah. I just know my own, but I don't know. I think it's the boring stuff. Yeah, Get the boring stuff right. The, um, the, you know, the, the other thing that I try to stress with people, and I wasn't very good at doing in sort of my 20s or early 30s was, you know, even when it's tough, like being able to take a moment and celebrate, you know, sort of milestones along the way, or at least appreciate the fact that we get to all try to make these things work, right? Like, uh, in my nature as an investor and an early stage investor, I am, of course, going to invest in things that end up not working, right? I'm in the business of backing things that fail, just like I'm in the business of backing things that succeed. And, you know, sometimes when I'm post-morteming with those people uh, who maybe it didn't work out, like, there's always one or two things that, you know, you'd look back and be like, oh, I would have done this differently, so on and so forth. Or, um, you know, man, we should have hired, you know, this function earlier. It's like, of course, of course, of course. But I also always try to find the things that were amazing, amazing about what didn't work out and say, you know, look, I know it doesn't feel great right now, but trust me, here are three things that you should be proud of. And like, you're going to, you're going to reference back to these three, you know, experiences, learnings, opportunities again and again and again. And um, how, how, you know, thank you for, you know, letting me take this journey with you. And like, don't forget that, you know, some good came out of this also. and like, that's the only way to keep going. If you make good decisions, the outcomes may or may not always be good. But if you keep making good decisions, like you will eventually have good outcomes. And I think from an entrepreneur's mindset, you sort of have to maintain that as best you can. Yeah. Sometimes we're almost like too optimized to outcomes. Well, right, outcomes there, only, you know? There's like the, I mean, it's, I guess it's not true, but it's sort of the like, hey, a, a, bee, a bee couldn't fly, but the bee doesn't know that, right? Like there's something that always says like, <laughs> yeah. like, like, you know, laws of physics mean like a bee is not designed to be able yeah. to fly. It's not true, but I love the saying. And it's sort of like, you know, it's like a startup's not like a, a startup shouldn't succeed, but somehow, you know, do. hundreds do. Right. right. And yeah. so you sort of have to believe that you might be one of those hundreds, but also realize that if you're not like, you you know, the, you're, the world's not going to end. Oh, this is such a good note to end on. My yeah. God. Thanks. Uh, that's all for today's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Please head to your iTunes store, search for the show, leave us a review, um, do all my favorite things, or tweet at me and tell me what you hated. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Bye.